Welcome to this special episode of Stacks and Stories, the podcast of the Mississippi Library Commission. On today's episode, University of Southern Mississippi Associate Professor of History Max Grivno talks about Mississippi's African Americans during and directly after the Civil War, including their service in the Federal Army and their attendance in schools for formerly enslaved people. This presentation is made possible by a grant through the Mississippi Humanities Council. Please note that the following audio has been pulled from the Black Mississippians in the Civil War video originally recorded on June 19, 2020 as part of the lunch lecture series posted to the Mississippi Library Commission's YouTube channel and has been edited to better fit the podcast format. So, stay tuned. Hey there, welcome to the Mississippi Library Commission's Summer Lunch Lecture Series. This is the third installment in our series. This series is sponsored by the Mississippi Humanities Council. Today we have Dr. Max Grivno talking about slavery in Civil War Mississippi. He's a member of the history faculty at University of Southern Miss, um, has been there since 2007. His first book, Gleanings of Freedom, Free Labor and Slavery Among the Mason-Dixon Line, 1790 to 1860, was published in 2001 by University of Illinois Press. Dr. Grivno is currently writing From Bondage to Freedom, Slavery in Mississippi, 1690 to 1865. His teaching interests include the Old South, slavery, labor history, and Mississippi history. Welcome, Dr. Grivno. I should have said this before. Um, if you have uh, our participants, if you'd like to ask a question, go ahead and use the chat function so you won't forget your burning question. And then at the end of the presentation, uh, we'll, we'll loop back in and I'll ask those questions and Dr. Grivno will answer them. So, okay. All right. Well, thank you, Ms. Carr, and thank you all for coming out this Juneteenth to discuss a topic that seems both important and, and timely. As always, my thanks to the Mississippi Humanities Council for their generous support of this afternoon's lecture. I'd like to begin our discussion today with a painting. The artist was Theodore Kaufman. Kaufman was a refugee from the German revolutions of 1848 a political activist, a union soldier, and an artist. The setting of this painting is unknown. Kaufman served in Tennessee during the war, but it captures a scene that could have been seen almost anywhere in the Confederacy during the war. In the painting, we see enslaved people, women and children, almost all of them barefoot, their clothing in tatters, a look of apprehension fear, and maybe hope on their eyes as they flee toward Union positions that you can see in the, in the distant background. You can see the American flag waving in the smoke of a cannon or maybe a campfire in the distance, and they're all moving toward that distant point of, of freedom. And I've always been drawn to this painting because it captures both the promise and the peril of emancipation that passage from slavery to freedom that was so fraught with conflicting emotion, with danger, and, and with hope. A Union soldier who served in Mississippi during the war, Theodore Rood of the 12th Wisconsin Infantry, wrote what very well could have been a caption to this painting during the Meridian Campaign of 1864. During that campaign, Rude and a column of Union soldiers moved across the state 
from Vicksburg to Jackson and then Meridian. And here's how he described the columns of enslaved people who fled to Union lines during that campaign. On our way out, even before reaching Jackson, we had been joined by hundreds of slaves who seemed to think that going with us meant to be free. There were bright young boys, bashful 16-year-old girls, stout middle-aged men and women, decrepit old people almost ready for the freedom of the grave. There were mothers with half a dozen children step-laddered between young babyhood and eight or 10 years of age. There were crippled young people being helped along the road by those who wanted to take this chance for liberty, but would not leave the grandfather or grandmother behind to die alone. We saw more than one mother carrying two children and dragging another one or two clinging to her skirts. One day we overtook a queer conveyance. It was a very rickety two-wheeled old cart with rough rails for shafts, the end of which were hooked into the edges of a single yoke worn by a venerable looking ox. On the cart was a loose framework intended for a box. In this, sitting on a heap of dirty old rags, sat a little white-haired shriveled up slave. He was grasping with both hands one of his legs just below the knee and holding it up so as not to let it get the jarring motion of the cart. And we noticed that the foot had been lately cut off. The bone at the stump seemed nearly bare and looked sore. It was a wretched sight, one not soon to be forgotten. My lecture this afternoon is about passages like this one, passages from slavery to a very dangerous and uncertain freedom. And I'd like us to begin with Mississippi on the eve of the Civil War. When looking at Mississippi in 1860 and 1861, it is important to emphasize the centrality of slavery to the state's economy, to its political system, even to its religious structures. Mississippi was a thorough slaveholding state, and virtually every institution in that state was enthralled to slavery. If we look at Mississippi's population in 1860, we see that there were around 350,000 whites, a mere handful of free blacks, some 773, while enslaved blacks accounted for a majority of people in the state, 436,631 people, a majority of the state's population held in bondage. If we look at slave ownership, we see that 55% of households in the state contained enslaved people. The majority of households in the state had a vested interest in maintaining slavery. If we look at taxable property in Mississippi, the total assessed property in Mississippi in 1861 was about $472 million. Of that, enslaved people accounted for almost 288 million of those dollars, or approximately 61% of the taxable property in the state consisted of enslaved people. Now, this was a fact that the Mississippi Secession Convention recognized in 1861 when it declared why it was seceding. You can see this famous quote from the opening passage of the Ordinance of Secession. Our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest of the world. There was no choice left us but submission to the mandates of abolition 
or a dissolution of the union whose principles had been subverted to work out our doom. While Mississippi was leaving the union, it dispatched commissioners to other states to encourage them to secede as well. One of them was William L. Harris. And Harris had this to say about why Mississippi had seceded. And this is from an address he delivered to the Georgia legislature. Harris declared, our fathers made this a government for the white man, rejecting the Negro as an ignorant, inferior, barbarian race, incapable of self-government, and not therefore entitled to be associated with the white man upon terms of civil, political, or social equality. Mississippi is firmly convinced there is but one alternative. This new union with Lincoln, black Republicans, and free Negroes without slavery, or slavery under our old constitutional bond of union, without Lincoln, black Republicans, or free Negroes either, to molest us. They did not mince words. Secession was meant to preserve slavery, and it was meant to preserve white supremacy. Now, in the political hothouse of 1860 and 1861, with debates about secession raging across the state, it was not surprising that the enslaved received a quick and rough education in the issues of the day. Now, this is an amazing, amazing passage. It was reprinted in the anti-slavery bugle of Lisbon, Ohio. Uh, they had clipped the story from a paper, the Panola Mississippi Star, which is no longer extant. But if we take a look at the second paragraph, we see how the political debates around secession seeped into the quarters and gave the enslaved a strong sense of what this war was all about. If we look at that second quote, we wish to suggest the propriety of all slaveholders taking pains to correct a very, and here I apologize, my screen has cropped this um, a little bit, a, a very, I think it's, well, impression now prevailing among the Negroes about the election of Lincoln. And it goes on to state that the enslaved people had somehow got the impression that Lincoln was going to free the slaves. Now, if we look at the, at the debates in the state secession convention and speeches like those of Harris, it's not surprising how any intelligent person would get the impression that Lincoln had something to do with emancipation and that secession had something to do with slavery and that there were opportunities here for enslaved people to get a sense of what the war was about and how the war might benefit them. Now, the author of this piece in the Panola Star goes on to note in this last paragraph that if something was not done to keep the enslaved from understanding what the war was about, there would be trouble soon. That they would have to do something to stop news from spreading among the enslaved because they recognized they were sitting on a powder keg. That the majority of people in the state of Mississippi were enslaved and they had everything to gain in this war especially if it was a war about slavery and a war that would be fought over the issue of black freedom and also black equality. There were signs almost from the beginning of the war that the enslaved were going to take this opportunity to strike for their freedom. Here's an excerpt from the Vicksburg Whig of January 2nd, 1861, before the fighting of the war had even begun. And in the first paragraph, there's a discussion of a slave insurrection that had been discovered 
up near Pontotoc, Mississippi, but it's the second paragraph that I would like to draw your attention to. And in this, we can see that there is a gentleman living near Houston, Mississippi, who ordered one of his enslaved men to do a bit of work. And what did this man tell him? Well, the enslaved man said if he wanted something done, he should do it himself, and that he would soon be as free as anyone. The response from his master, I think, was telling. It reveals something about the state that slaveholders were in, in that opening winter of the war, because his master then went into his house, grabbed a gun, and shot this enslaved man dead, and asked anyone else if they wanted to be, they wanted to be free. Stories like this were common in those opening months and years of the war. The state was awash in rumors of slave insurrections. Some may have been the result of terrified, almost hysterical slaveholders imagining a revolt where there may not have been one. Others may actually have been the enslaved stirring and beginning to press for their, to press for their freedom. So here's another example. This one concerned the Mississippi Central Railroad and a work camp in Yazoo County, Mississippi, where the enslaved were helping to build the railroad. And apparently in this insurrection, there were 10 enslaved people who were arrested and then summarily hung. Another group were under arrest. They had also arrested some Germans in the neighborhood, believing that they may have been at the root of this insurrection. It's hard to say what role outside uh, conspirators may have played in these insurrections. But again, you get a sense that there is a movement afoot among the enslaved. Here again, going back to that opening winter of the war. The last paragraph here, at Natchez there had been an insurrection and at least 20 enslaved people were hung. Some may have been, some may have been whipped to death. And if you go through Mississippi newspapers in those opening months of the war, you see time and time again stories like this. You see them in letters sent to Governor Pettus as well, where from almost every corner of the state, there are fears of slave insurrections. Here again, I don't want to belabor the point, but I do want to make it clear that these insurrections seem to be happening just about everywhere. So here's one from January of 1862, another one from Natchez, Mississippi. And here a Confederate Provost Marshal has stumbled upon an insurrection. At least seven enslaved people had been hung and Confederate authorities had become convinced that this insurrection was part of a much larger scheme that had spread all along the Mississippi River Valley. Another one from July 2nd, 1862. Uh, this one comes from the Greensboro, Mississippi motive, and it's a report of an insurrection near Double Pipe Creek in, in Mississippi. Now, because of these insurrections, Confederate forces had to become, for all intents and purposes, a slave patrol. And the Confederacy, whose military resources were always inferior to those of the Union, had to use home guards, militias, and in some cases, regular army units to try to maintain control of the slave population. So here's an order coming out of Natchez, Mississippi, where there had been insurrections or rumors of insurrections in the opening months of the war, it's the provost marshal of Natchez, Mississippi, and he's encouraging 
planters and overseers to maintain slave patrols in their areas. And in the last line, it is further directed that they report to this office as soon as possible the number of slaves under their charge respectively, and also all cases of insubordination or revolt of, of slaves. So these insurrections, they're part of a much larger pattern, it seems. And that pattern is forcing the Confederacy to expend its precious supplies, especially its manpower, to fight two wars. One against the North, but another war being fought against the enslaved people in their midst. If the enslaved were becoming a liability to the Confederacy, they were also at the same time becoming an asset to the Union. And here, I think, is where some of these strands start to come together in stories like this one. So this one comes out of Natchez. It's in September of 1862. The federal gunboat Essex was patrolling in the neighborhood of Natchez. And like many Union gunboats and its crew were busily gathering up any supplies that could be useful to the Union war effort, food, livestock. But here, we see that the gunboat Essex was being guided by one of Mr. Saunders' runaway slaves. So an enslaved person had escaped and was serving as a guide for this Union gunboat. And if we take a look at what they were trying to do, well, they're trying to capture not only sheep and cattle and other things, but they're also trying to secure the overseer, Mr. Morgan, uh, the man who oversaw Saunders' plantation, in order to kill him. So you see an enslaved person who's guiding Union forces on their mission to gather supplies, but along the way, he's also encouraging them if they, if they have the time to go back and also kill, to kill his overseer. The enslaved people, it seemed that everywhere that Union forces went, the enslaved people were eager and willing to share military intelligence with them. So here's a report, and it's part of a much larger report describing describing the state of affairs around Yazoo City, Mississippi, in the summer of 1863. And the author of the report is commenting on Confederate military property that he has either seized or destroyed, but he's also passing along intelligence. And if we look at the second paragraph, the enclosed letters were written by Dr. Butts, whose wife is the sister of Mrs. Blackburn and who resides on Deer Creek, Mississippi. Mr. Mount, to whom one of them is written, is a strong secessor living also on Deer Creek. The letters, instead of being taken to their destination, were brought by the bearer, a Negro, to me, and may be of interest to you. It's an enslaved person who has a handful of letters written between prominent secessionists, and he's running to Union lines instead of delivering those letters to their intended destination and passing along valuable intelligence to to Union forces. The enslaved people throughout the war evinced a very strong and clear understanding of what the war was about. They had heard it all during the secession debates. And as the war progressed, you see time and time again that they are fully apprised of what was happening on the local, state, and national level. This is an amazing little story from November of 1862. 
In September of 1862, Abraham Lincoln had issued the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. And that proclamation offered freedom to enslaved people in Confederate territory that would take effect on January 1st of 1863. We take a look at this story. An Iowa exchange, a newspaper in Iowa, says that a Delaware County soldier just arrived at home on a furlough asserts that the first information he had of the president's proclamation was from a runaway Negro slave in northern Mississippi. The soldier did not hear it from northern sources till he had arrived within 12 miles of the Ohio River. So what's happened here? Well, a soldier from Iowa is campaigning in north Mississippi, and the very first he hears about the Emancipation Proclamation is from an enslaved person. That news has gone from the northern press, and it has spread like wildfire among the enslaved. So when the soldier is on campaign, he comes across a runaway slave, and that enslaved person tells him that he is to be free, that the Emancipation Proclamation will be going into effect. And the soldier doesn't hear any more news about this through official channels until he's almost back at the Ohio River. It's another example of the same thing. This one is from the Macon Beacon. And it's a story about an enslaved woman who has escaped. And her captor isn't entirely certain where she may have gone. She may have hopped on board a train with her child and gone toward Holly Springs, Mississippi. They may have gone to Mobile, Mississippi, he's, or Mobile, Alabama. He's, he's not sure. But the second part of this story, the woman could read and write and was heard to observe that the Negroes were to be free as the whites after the 1st of January. And so what has she heard of? She has heard about the Emancipation Proclamation and has taken her step toward freedom already in November of 1862 before the proclamation has gone into, has gone into effect. Union forces recognized that the enslaved could bring valuable intelligence and they tried, they tried their best to protect and, and to reward them. So here's a general order um, issued by Union forces operating in Mississippi. And at this point, Union forces were dealing with guerrilla bands that were attacking federal outposts, federal supply trains, and they're desperate for intelligence. And if we look at Part four of this order. Any person, white or black, free or slave, who brings reliable information of guerrilla bands, marauding parties, and of citizens who are breaking any provisions of this order, with information proving to be a benefit to the U.S. forces, will receive a liberal reward. If a slave, he will be guaranteed against receiving punishment for bringing such information. But even with protection being offered by Union forces, this was, was dangerous. I began this afternoon's lecture, I mentioned that this was a moment that was fraught with promise and, and peril. Here's a story that captures the peril. So this is a story clipped from the Times-Picayune, uh, but the story occurred on Deer Creek uh, in the Yazoo, Mississippi Delta. And in this story, an enslaved person approached a group of soldiers 
and mistook them for federal soldiers. And he offered to serve as their guide. He also asked for a gun to shoot his master. Unfortunately for this man, the soldiers were not Federals. They were Confederate, Confederate soldiers. And this man, as it, the headline states, he missed at that time. He, uh, he approached Confederate soldiers, offered to assist Union soldiers, and for that he, he was hung. Union forces, um, as the war progressed, benefited from the assistance of enslaved people, but they also found themselves dealing with what today we would call a refugee crisis. Enslaved people, men, women, children, young and old, flocked to Union lines, many of them in truly desperate condition. These were people who had packed up what little property they owned and fled desperately hoping to receive protection. We see scenes like this unfold across the state. This depicts the arrival of federal forces and federal gunboats at Chickasaw Bayou, Mississippi, and enslaved people, including some from Jefferson Davis's own plantations, fleeing to Union lines. Conditions for refugees behind Union lines were often appalling. The Union Army was neither equipped nor prepared to deal with a large number of refugees. Disease, starvation were all rampant behind Union lines and in the refugee camps that they organized in places like Natchez and Vicksburg and Memphis. And Union soldiers who came from a society that was often as racist as that of the South were not above taking advantage of the enslaved beating them, robbing them, in some cases, in some cases, raping them. These were people who were an incredibly, in an incredibly vulnerable situation. And the situation was getting just as bad behind Confederate lines. As the Union began to recognize that the enslaved were a military resource that could assist them and a military asset they could seize from the Confederacy, the Confederate government, along with individual slaveholders, began pulling large numbers of enslaved people deeper and deeper into the Confederate interior. There were, in effect, two refugee crises unfolding, one behind Union lines and another behind Confederate lines. So here we have a paper in Vermont that is picked up on a newspaper story that had been published uh, in a southern newspaper. But in it, it describes thousands of enslaved people from across the Confederacy who've been pulled deeper into the Confederate interior by slaveholders who were desperate to keep them from getting to Union lines. And the last lines of this story capture a real crisis unfolding. Great distress was occasioned by this enormous influx of food consumers. And so scarce had substance become that even cornbread was a luxury and almost the sole diet of every class. Fears of starvation the coming winter were prevalent. So those same problems of starvation, of disease, of exposure to the elements that you see in Union refugee camps, they're unfolding behind, behind Confederate lines as well. The Confederate government was actively involved in trying to move enslaved people from places like Mississippi, where they were exposed to Union soldiers and sailors who might take them to, to freedom. 
you capture that in orders like this one. It was issued in November of 1863 uh, by a Confederate officer stationed in Meridian. And in this order, he dispatches, um, he dispatches part of the first Alabama volunteers and a group of cavalry as well um, to go on a raid into Mississippi. And they are to burn the gunboat Indianola. But if we take a look at the last part of section seven of this, they're to bring away any Negroes they may find on the adjacent plantations. Essentially, if you see enslaved people, grab them and take them back to places like Meridian, where they may, may be safer. This need for the Confederacy to withdraw enslaved people farther away from Union forces became more, more desperate, more urgent as the war progressed. Confederate officials could look across the lines and they could see Union forces benefiting from the labor of formerly enslaved people. They were building fortifications, they were driving wagons, and they were, they were fighting. So here's an order from the fall of 1863. And this Confederate officer is encouraging people to bring any enslaved person who can do government work back to Meridian. But the reason isn't just to get their labor. The principal reason, he writes, for this order is to be found in the fact that every Negro fit to be made a soldier is put by the enemy in his ranks. The Emancipation Proclamation declared that the Union Army and Navy could take enslaved people and make them into soldiers. And if we look at Mississippi, we see that many men, enslaved men of military age, did take up arms. The last census taken to Mississippi before the war revealed that there were close to 86,000 enslaved men of military age in the state. At the end of the war, the federal government calculated that close to 18,000 of those men, some 21% of them, made their way into the federal armed forces during the war. For many of these enslaved men, the Civil War was a transformative experience. It was a transformation of a person from a chattel, from a piece of property that could be bought, sold, and beaten into, into a soldier. And if we take as our starting point an image like this of a United States Colored Troop volunteer uh, at Vicksburg, Mississippi, who was photographed shortly after he joined the Union Army, you get a sense of the transformation that was happening. Back is covered in a blanket of, of scars from a whipping. And emancipation and military service promised not only freedom, but also a measure of, of dignity. Of these photographs, they're not taken from Mississippi, but I think they'll illustrate my point the transformation that military service offered black men. So here's Hubbard Taylor, and it's a before and after photograph taken at just about the same location. And you can see him dressed in the clothing that he wore while he was enslaved on the one side, and then you can see him standing erect and proud uh, as a Union soldier on the other. 
black soldiers were aware of just how revolutionary this transformation was. And here, again, we see that transformation. These are the regimental standards of the 22nd United States Colored Troop. And you get a sense of what the war meant for them. Up at the top of their regimental standards is the, the banner Sic Semper Tyrannis, thus always to tyrants. But in this case, it's not Great Britain that's being slayed as a tyrant. The tyrant in this case is a Confederate soldier, and that Confederate soldier is being, is being killed by a black man in the Union Army. Military service could bring about truly unimaginable transformations. So here you see the first Mississippi colored cavalry, and they are riding through town with a group of rather dejected looking Confederate prisoners in tow. They've gone from being the captives themselves to being, to being the captors. Black soldiers could even find themselves guarding Confederate generals who had been taken prisoner during the war. Although black men were not allowed to serve as commissioned officers in the Union Army, they were allowed to hold the highest non-commissioned ranks. So here you can see a black sergeant and a black sergeant major. And again, these photographs are so powerful, they're so revealing. In the one case, you see a man holding a book, announcing that he's literate, also while he's wearing his non-commissioned officer's sword. And in the other photograph, you can just sense the pride, the power, the authority in the black sergeant major with his arms crossed across his chest. For black soldiers, the war meant not only an opportunity to claim their freedom, it also meant an opportunity to become literate. Armies during the Civil War ran on paperwork. Black non-commissioned officers, whether they were corporals or sergeant majors, had to fill out daily reports. They had to fill out the paperwork for the issuing of supplies and weapons. They had to report who was active and fit for duty. And for that to happen, they had to learn how to read. So the camps of black soldiers often included schools. And here you can see one at Port Hudson, Louisiana. Many of the soldiers who you see here would have been soldiers who had escaped from places like Louisiana, Arkansas, and and Mississippi, and you can see white officers scattered around. You can see black non-commissioned officers, but you can also see black privates, and in some cases, black children among those attending the school with their, with their books cracked open. And the schools were not just a resource for black soldiers. They were also a resource for the entire community of formerly enslaved people. So here we can see a school that operated for freedmen, women, and children at Vicksburg, Mississippi. Teachers were volunteers from the North, and you can see some of them in the foreground, the, the white women in the, in the hoop skirts. But you can see that this was a school not just for soldiers, but for women, children, for the entire, for the entire Black community. For former slaves, Education was an important first step toward citizenship. Freedom didn't just mean owning themselves, it meant acquiring the skills that they would need to survive as freed, as freed people. But freedom 
also meant the ability to reconnect with families and to put families on a sound legal footing. Enslaved people could be married uh, before emancipation. They could have religious ceremonies uh, to solemnize their, their marriages, but those marriages had no legal standing. A slave owner could separate children from their parents, could separate husbands from their wives. So oftentimes when enslaved people entered into freedom, one of the first things they did was they tried to reunite with their families, but also to give those families legal protection. And if we think about the transformations that were happening during the war, nothing perhaps captures those transformations better than pages like this. This is a ledger from a United States Colored Troops marriage register. I believe it's from Vicksburg, maybe from, from Natchez. But the men in this regiment were all eager to get married and to make those marriages legal. The ledger captures quite a bit of information. It captures the race of the groom's father, the race of the groom's mother, and you can see the same information for the bride. But one of the more powerful columns is asking what happened to your previous marriages? Had you been married before this marriage? If so, why did that marriage end? And you can see there's a column under both, the, under both the groom and the bride, and it reads separated by. And if you take a look at the groom's side, that column separated by, separated by force, death, force, 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 death. You see that most of the men who were coming forward to be married had been married before. And that some of those marriages seem to have been very long standing. If you take a look at the number of children that had come from that previous marriage, one child, nine children, one child, one child, five children, that these were long standing marriages that had been broken up. And a similar story unfolds when we take a look at the, at the bride's side of the ledger separated by force, 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 death, 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 force, and then the number of children. You can see that these were long-standing relationships that were then broken up and now the enslaved are trying to put their lives back together. And here again, I think, is where we capture the uncertainty that we see in that very first painting, the painting from Theodore Kaufman that I used at the start of today's lecture. During the war, the freed, the former slaves received their freedom. They served their nation in many cases. They acquired a rudimentary education. They began to put their marriages and their families on some legal footing, but there were many questions that remained answered. At the end of the war, former slaves were free, but they were not citizens. Former slaves were free, but they did not have the right to vote. Former slaves were free, but they received nothing for their time in, in bondage. Slave labor literally built the state of Mississippi. The enslaved people represented the majority of wealth in Mississippi. And their owners fought a war to maintain that system. And at the end of the war, 
the freed people received their freedom, but nothing more in many cases. So with that, I'm going to thank you and open the floor to, to questions. Thank you very much for, for that. I love looking at primary source things. So this page in particular has been really interesting. We have had a couple of questions in the chat, but before you do that, before you move off of the screen, what is D-O? Uh, ditto. Well, it's, it's, it's asking about the race, but it's D-O of mother? Oh, so it's color, right? You see color, and then color, ditto of father. Oh, got it. Yeah. I was like, how can, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Okay, let's see. Let's look at our chat thing. I think one of the first newspaper things that you shared was mm -hmm. the notice that somehow the slaves are getting the idea that Abraham Lincoln is going to free them. I mm -hmm. thought that was an amazing, just like gaslighting, disinformation thing. There, there, there's something quite odd about those opening months of the war. Lincoln made it very clear that as president, he would have had no constitutional authority to interfere with slavery where it existed. That his goal was simply to restrict the spread of slavery into the Western territories. Southern politicians made Lincoln into much more of an abolitionist than he ever was. There's an, something akin to hysteria in the opening months of the war where they portray Lincoln as this dyed-in-the-wool Garrisonian abolitionist, right, the very incarnation of John Brown. And it's simply not the case in those early months of the war. But the enslaved would have heard time and time again that Lincoln is an abolitionist, that Lincoln wants to free you. And it's that newspaper clipping from the Panola Star where they make it clear this is really a dangerous thing to be saying, right? especially in, you know, in some parts of the state where you had overwhelming slave majorities. It could be a, a district or a neighborhood where three quarters or more of the people living there were enslaved, and you're telling them that there is this politician out there who's now president who is a threat to slavery and who wants to see slavery abolished and the race is set on an equal footing. This is my own comment, but I think it might have been the next newspaper clipping about thing in Yazoo City. I love old newspapers for a lot of reasons, but these people are murdered. These people are spreading poison. It was an intense excitement. Like mm -hmm. that, okay, that's a, that's a way of looking at it. That's cool. <laughs> Historians are still, they still debate to what extent this insurrection scare, and it, it wasn't simply in places like Mississippi, it was across the South. To what extent was this a reflection of the reality on the ground? Were there insurrections popping up everywhere? Or were slaveholders simply gripped by hysteria? And another interpretation is, were these all kind of cynical attempts mm -hmm. to shape public opinion? In many parts of the Confederacy, support for secession was lukewarm at best. So how do you get people to circle the wagons? How do you get people to support secession? Well, you create this specter of a slave insurrection to force all white people to sort of say, it doesn't matter what you think of secession, we all have to be on the same side here. So again, it's the equivalent would be a Facebook post that 
hints at some kind of it's the same thing basically it is the right. spread of disinformation to sway the the public right and again it, it's hard to say how many of these were real insurrections how many of them were exaggerated but but it does seem clear you know if we sort of assume that the killing of people reflects a reality right that they're really hanging people that does suggest on some level a very a very real fear Okay, we had someone ask, I'm curious about Juneteenth and if Dr. Grivno can explain how Texas managed to keep emancipation a secret for all that time after the Emancipation Proclamation. So I actually think this is a case where history and myth get a little blurred. My sense has always been that many enslaved people in Texas knew that the Emancipation Proclamation was in force simply because Texas was one of those places where slaveholders took their enslaved people to keep them safe. Mm. The slave population of Texas seems to have spiked during the war, and that was driven in many cases by refugees from Louisiana, Arkansas, Texas, people taking their enslaved people and heading west. So the enslaved people who were in Texas my sense is that many knew that the Emancipation Proclamation was out there. What happens is June is when the Union forces arrive and are actually able to make emancipation a, a reality. Right? For, for emancipation to be, to be real, you need to have the enslaved people getting to Union lines. The Emancipation Proclamation declared that all enslaved people in Confederate territory were free, but you can see on its surface that in many ways that's almost meaningless. If an enslaved person is in territory controlled by the Confederacy, it's not as if they can say the proclamation is in effect, you have to let me be free. What it says is if you can get to Union territory, if you can get to Union lines, then you will be free. That, that does make sense. Okay, we have a long, long one here. Um, in Kevin Levin, I don't know if it's Levin or Levin, Anyway, mm -hmm. that guy, Kevin Levin's book about the myth of black Confederates, he speaks mm -hmm. to the role of the camp slave with Confederate troops. In your right. research, have you found much mention of the Confederacy utilizing slaves they rescued from the influence of Union troops as assistance for their own military need, or were they simply turned over to other plantation holders? If they were turned over to plantation holders, how was this accepted in relation to the property rights of Southerners? So one of the things that you see in... Mississippi almost from the beginning of the war is this tug of war between individual slaveholders and the Confederate government. In many cases, slaveholders would take a trusted slave, although in some cases they discovered that that enslaved person, their loyalty wasn't quite as deep as they thought. They would take a valet or a servant with them to camp. But in cases where the Confederate government would come into a neighborhood and say, we need every enslaved person here to work on the fortifications of Vicksburg, or every enslaved person here to come work on the fortifications at Columbus, slaveholders often fought tooth and nail to keep Confederate officials from taking those enslaved people to work for the Confederate government. There's a very strange dynamic where enslaved people were a vital military resource and their labor was needed for the Confederate war effort. But when the Confederate government said, we need to impress slaves for military service, slaveholders resisted. 
in part because they feared that their enslaved people would be mistreated and conditions at those work sites were often dangerous. But they also resisted because the enslaved people were being taken to those places where they were most exposed to Union soldiers. If Confederate officials come to your neighborhood and say, we need your slaves to work on fortifications, you might say, well, where are those? And those fortifications are usually going to be closer to the Union lines in your plantation. So you're going to be terrified that they're going to do what? They're going to go to the fortifications and they might get sick, they might die, they may be mistreated and come back and be of very little use to you, or they might just run away, which was probably the most likely part of this. So individual slaveholders would take their servants to camp on a, on a fairly regular basis. But when it gets to using enslaved people as military laborers, you start to see some real pushback. In 1862 and 1863, Governor Pettus and the Mississippi legislature actually try to put real limits on what the Confederate government can do to impress enslaved people. I'm not sure if that quite got to that, that long question, but it's to, it's to point out that the use of enslaved laborers by the Confederacy, it was a very dicey kind of situation for many slaveholders. If anyone else has a question, you can unmute yourself and have at it. Anyone? Okay, well, oh, we have some so interesting and great presentation. We'll take it. Um, okay, thank you. thank you so much for everyone for coming and thank you to Dr. All right, thank you all for being here and for the questions. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Stacks and Stories, the podcast of the Mississippi Library Commission. We hope you will tune in next time, and we encourage you to visit your local public library often.